Hey everybody, uh, my name is Ryan. Uh, if I haven't gotten to meet you, I would love to meet you sometime. So make sure you take a chance to introduce yourself to me if you can. I love uh, getting to meet new people and just hearing all the passions that are on all of your hearts. Uh, my role here at South Bend City Church is to help us uh, to engage and interact with the city. Basically, just thinking through what it means for us to be good neighbors in this city. Uh, before I get into the lesson that, uh, that we're going to look at today from the book of Acts, I just want to talk a little bit about some city stuff for you that I'm excited uh, to get to start having some conversations with you. Uh, I remember in high school or so, I remember starting to feel uh, kind of some passions for justice rising up in me. And one of the first times I remember kind of feeling those feelings of justice and injustice uh, was reading a book called The Scarlet Letter. And many of you have probably read that book. Uh, many of you probably haven't. But the story is about a woman who uh, a long time ago committed adultery and her, her village made her wear uh, a scarlet uh, letter A around her neck too, uh, so that everybody she knew uh, knew what she had done. And she was forever labeled by that part of her past experience. And I remember reading that and thinking how horrible it was that somebody would be minimized down to uh, one specific aspect of their life. Uh, but I grew up then, uh, and over time as I grew up, I began to realize uh, that it's not just uh, this horrid thing that sometimes happens to other people, uh, but that I was guilty of that in my own life, and that churches sometimes are guilty of putting simple labels on people. And sometimes uh, it happens out of, you know, kind of brokenness in us and sinfulness in us. But sometimes we put labels on people with good intentions so that we can figure out solutions for people, right? If we know that somebody is hungry, then we know that we need to have the solution of finding them food from somewhere. Or if we know that someone is poor, we know that we can uh, help solve their problems by providing them money or helping them to find jobs. If we know that somebody is homeless, we can put that label on them and know that we simply need to find them a home. Or if somebody uh, is not a Christian or is outside of faith, then we can give them that label so that we know that these are people that we just need to share Jesus with. But that's not who we are as a church. Uh, we want to reject some of these simple labels and simple solutions. Uh, I want to encourage us that uh, it's easy to put labels because we, it tries to, to help us think through how we're going to manage things, but labeling people uh, based on simple ways falls way short of the complex dignity that God has put into each person, right? And having simple, very simplistic solutions falls way short of the complex work that God wants to do in our lives and the lives of those around us. So our desire here as a church is that in all of the relationships that we get into, that relationships come first, that our desire to love other people is going to be what drives us and what is the basis of all of the interactions that we have with other people. In the future, we're going to be able to jump into some really great relationships with other organizations and other people in the city that we're going to be able to get to show the love of God to people throughout of our city. One of those relationships is going to be with Hope Ministries. Who knows what other relationships may be in the future? Maybe it's going to be with uh, organizations working with youth or other things. But in all of these relationships we have, when we get into these relationships, our main desire, our main goal is just going to be forming ongoing relationships and friendships. I was talking to my friend Rusty, who works at Hope, and he said, you know what, Ryan? He said, uh, churches get that there's need here, 
And, and a, lot of, a lot of people want to do a lot of things, but you know what our residents need more than anything is they need friendships that are full of grace and peace. That's what they need. And he said, you know what, the, the funny thing is that's what we all need is friendships that are full of grace and peace, friendships that reflect God's love for each other. And so as we move forward into these relationships, uh, I want that to be the thing that we remember, that our desire is to bring friendships of grace and peace to those that we come into contact with. And sometimes, it, you know, we are going to, to help provide food or shelter or clothing or all sorts of other things, but when we do that, We'll do those things because we have relationships with people and we can see what their needs are, not because somebody has slapped a label on them uh, based on their experience or based on their zip code. We will meet people's needs in physical ways because of the relationships and friendships that we have with them. Does that make sense? So in this desire to have friendships and have relationships with people, uh, we have our first kind of step out into that that I want to announce today. Uh, we are going to be doing an activity coming up with Hope Ministries. Uh, unfortunately, this first one is just for the guys. Uh, so sorry, ladies, we will have something coming up in the future for the ladies, but this was the starting point for us, all right? So uh, two weeks from now or so on Saturday, February 25th, from 2 o'clock to 4 o'clock, we are going bowling with the guys from Hope Ministry, okay? So any guys who are willing and who are interested in coming along and just forming some really good friendships there, uh, we're going to have a really fantastic time. We announced this uh, Tuesday morning to those guys when I was over there, and they were ecstatic about it. They were really pumped. There was a little bit of trash talk going on, so... Uh, like, you know, bring your game. I have no game, so I just kind of rolled over from the beginning. I was like, yeah, I'll, you guys will just teach me or something. So, uh, but we are setting out, and we are setting out uh, to form those friendships that will continue moving forward. So put that on your account if you can. It's on the back of your program as well. Saturday, February 25th, 2 to 4 for the guys going bowling. All right. That's all I got there. Let's move on. Uh, tonight, we are continuing through the book of Acts, and as we continue through the book of Acts, we're talking about what does it mean for us to be a church. And in that process of finding out what it means to, for us to be a church, the part of the sorting process is learning also what it doesn't mean for us to be a church. And there's a question I want us to ask tonight as we look at things to kind of get us started, and the question is this. Have you ever experienced a situation where someone seemed to understand and yet completely misunderstand at the exact same time, right? Where, where something happened, and as somebody looked at it, they, they both got it and couldn't have been farther from it at the same time. All right, if this is really confusing to you, let me tell you a story uh, that happened to me and my daughter. Uh, my daughter, Callie, she's awesome. She's over there. So we had this story together. Um, it has to do with the doctor's office. Let me first say, doctor's offices are really interesting places, right? Uh, think about all the awkward things that have happened to you in doctor's offices, right? There's a lot of awkward stuff that goes on. In doctor's offices, the whole thing is held together by one unspoken agreement, and that is professionalism. Like, they don't laugh, you don't laugh, <laughs> everything's okay, right? And, and this whole extremely awkward uh, situation is held together by that small thread, that small unspoken agreement of professionalism, of not laughing. So this was a couple of years ago. Uh, I'm getting older. My knee, I'm a soccer player. My knee went bad. Uh, so I go into physical therapy, right? 
And it's just basically trying to work on my ligaments and everything uh, and get it so that my knee isn't hurting every time I try and run, every time I try and play. So I'm going to this weekly physical therapy appointment and it's fun. You do some like workout stuff and like slide side to side like a hockey player and like, you know, all these creative little exercises. Well, one day, uh, near the end of my time of going to physical therapy, uh, Robin comes to me, my wife, and she says, hey, uh, our youngest child has a birthday party that she has to go to, and I don't know what to do with Callie. Can you take her to, with you to your physical therapy appointment? And I was like, well, yeah, she can come along. She could sit there with me. Uh, you know, she's smart. She likes science. It could be like a job shadowing kind of a thing. Like, she could see if she wants to be a physical therapist someday. Like, what's the problem, right? So she comes with me, and uh, it's a good, you know, daddy-daughter bonding time, and she's sitting there, and she watches me do my exercises and everything, and then it comes time to meet in, in, the, in the doctor's room with the physical therapist. And so she sits in the chair. There's a, there's a table there that you often have in doctor's offices, and then there's the chairs that face the table, you know, that you sit in until it's time for you. So Callie sat in one of those chairs in the, facing the table there, and I sat down on the table. My physical therapist comes in and she says, hey, I've been talking to, you, to one of my coworkers about you, which that's always great to know that that's going on, right? Uh, so she says, I've been talking to one of my, my coworkers and she thinks that she has a therapy that might work for you for what you have going on and what's going on with your knee. So I'm going to have her come in and try it. So I say, okay. So uh, she has me lay down on the table and then uh, her other coworker comes in. So both of these physical therapists are now extremely focused on working on me and figuring out what's wrong with me. I'm feeling really old at this point in time, <laughs> laying on the table helpless, helplessly. So they lay me down on the table and I'm laying there kind of like in this fetal position, right? Like looking at my daughter, like, and now we're like at eye level <laughs> as she's sitting in the chair thinking this is really awkward seeing my dad laying down on this table right here like this, right? And I'm like curled up in the fetal position and they're talking behind me. And so the one, the, the one that had the therapy, she comes in and she says, yeah, so the first thing you wanna do is you just wanna make sure that they're really relaxed, you know? So, so just make sure he's nice and relaxed. And she's like, honey, are you, are you relaxed? I'm thinking, like, what kind of a question is that? I'm laying on a table with two people I don't know behind me, like staring at my daughter, like this is awkward. No, I, gu I guess I'm as relaxed as I can be for the situation. So. She said, okay, well, as long as you relax. And then it happened. I wasn't expecting it, but out of the blue, thwack, she smacks me right across the bum, like <laughs> right across it. I did not expect that. My eyes got big, but as big as my eyes got, uh, it wasn't nearly the, re the realization as when I saw Callie's eyes <laughs> right across to me because her eyes were huge. And at that point I knew this very thin thread, the unspoken agreement of professionalism was on the verge and I'm just staring her in the eyes, giving her the look like, don't you lose it. Don't you lose it. You hold it together, kid. Come on, hold it together. And then I hear them talking and, and the woman's like, well, what's happening is his nerve's not firing. And so you, you know, if you like hit the nerve, then, it, then it'll start working. And I think, great, now I'm like a vending machine, you know, that you're like, pound on it and it's going to start working. But that was what they were doing. And uh, once again, unexpectedly, she winds up and smacks me a second time. At this point in time, the thread was gone and Callie burst out just, you guys are spanking my dad. <laughs> oh, my dear. 
Yeah, at that point, both physical therapists, faces red, like left the room <laughs> immediately. Uh, I don't think I ever went back to physical therapy there again. It was, it was quite the adventure. Uh, so in one way, she was entirely right and entirely wrong at the exact same time, right? She got the content of what was going on, but she completely misunderstood the intent of what was going on, right? She got the details, but was missing something. There was something very important about how and why they were doing what they were doing, and that how and why made all of the difference. As far as Callie job shadowing me, I didn't know what she was going to take from that because she could walk around uh, through life spanking people all day long, and that would make her a lot of things, but a physical therapist wouldn't have been one of them. Right? She misunderstood the very essence of what was going on. Well, tonight we're going to look at another story of confusion that was going on, though a little different. Uh, so if you have your verses on your card, you can take it out, and we're going to look at the story in Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. We're going to start with just verses 11 through 16 there. So it says this. Uh, Luke's telling us. He says, So God gave Paul the power to perform unusual miracles, when handkerchiefs or aprons that had merely even touched his skin were placed on sick people, they were healed of their diseases and evil spirits were expelled. A group of Jews was traveling from town to town and they were casting out evil spirits. And so they tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus in their incantations, saying, I command you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to come out. So the seven sons of Sceva, a leaving priest, were the ones going around doing this. But one time when they tried it, the evil spirit replied, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? <laughs> then the man with the evil spirit leapt on them. One man leapt on seven of them, overpowered them, and attacked them with such violence that they fled from the house naked and battered. Now that is an interesting story. We meet this group of Jews in this story, these people that are going around, traveling around town. They're doing their thing traveling around, performing exorcisms, probably doing it for money, probably making money off of it, certainly drawing crowds, certainly drawing fame, some level of celebrity status, having people that kind of followed them and looked up to them, cheered them on, and they thrived on that power and that reputation that was earned from it. Now, this is a weird story. I don't really know what to do with the whole exorcism thing to be honest with you. We don't, it's not something that we see a lot of nowadays. Uh, like our understanding of science brings a lot of things into question. Some people have said, you know, what was going on back then? Were, were, they, were they experiencing people with mental health issues and, and we're trying to describe it? I don't, I don't know. I tend to think maybe there's something more going on there, uh, but it's hard to say. But what we do know is whatever these people were dealing with, they were dealing with something serious and whatever was going on with them was bringing them freedom from this thing that was happening, okay? So whatever you're comfortable with, as you figure out and process what this means, uh, it, it's a complicated thing. But let's, let's start with at least saying, this is a weird situation, right? So these guys are going around performing these exorcisms, and then one day they see this guy, Paul, who's kind of new into the region, who's gaining a following of his own. And Paul, he looks just like them. He's doing the kind of stuff that they're doing, but Paul's way more effective at it. 
Like the, the, the demons are just like popping right out of people like when Paul comes around and, and he doesn't even have to touch them. It can just be stuff that he's touched because he's so powerful at doing it and people are being healed in the process. So whatever game these Jewish guys have going on, these seven sons of Sceva, whatever game they have going on, Paul is beating them at their own game. He is doing more. He is doing better. And they see that and they decide to copy his technique so that they can be just like them. So they recognize that he talks a lot about this guy named Jesus. And back then for the ancient people, names were this very important thing and they used names a lot in their magic. And it was all about names. Did you have the right name that had the right authority to make things happen? And so you were always trying to get more powerful and more powerful and more powerful names. And so they heard that Paul's using this one name, this name of Jesus. And so if we use this name, then everything will be working out for us. It was like a password. Right? If you just know the right password, you can make the right things happen. So they decided that they were going to steal the passwords that Paul was using. And if they stole the passwords, then they would be just like Paul because they're using the same passwords as Paul. And you hear that, and you're like, that's just as crazy as Callie thinking if she goes around smacking people, she's a doctor for doing it, right? It's not about the, the words you're saying. There's about knowing what you're doing, knowing about something deeper that's going on behind it. So basically, that's the plan that these guys had. They were going to go out, and they were going to keep doing the same thing that they'd always been doing, and the only thing they were going to change is they were going to start using the name that Paul used, but still play by the same playbook. Same playbook. They just added one new play. And what was the result for them? They failed miserably. Again, the one guy uh, that was the demon-possessed guy attacks the seven of them and beats all seven of them to a pulp, and they end up fleeing the scene, and they're beat up, and they're bruised, and they're embarrassed, and they're naked, and it's like this scene out of a cartoon, right? Uh, how badly things went for them in this situation as everybody ends up running away. And I read this story, and it's funny to me <laughs> as I read it, like thinking of what happened to them and how stupid they were for thinking that that plan would possibly work. It's hilarious until I realize how easy it is for me to fall into that same trap. Like the Jewish exorcists, I have a normal way that I go around living life. I mean, I don't like go around doing exorcisms, but like I have like a normal way for me of living life, a thing that I just do day in and day out, and so do you. We all have a playbook, a way that we live life. And in our playbook, sometime one part of our playbook might be our daily routine, just how we go about life. Some of you are more uh, creatures of habit than others, right? That you do the same thing every day, you wake up at the same time, you go make the same cup of coffee, you, or you go to the same coffee shop to get your coffee. You know, you have your patterns, you have your way of doing things. That daily routine is part of your playbook that you end up living life by. Maybe your worldview is a part of that playbook as well. How you see things, how you think about things. And maybe that worldview is just a worldview that you inherited even. Maybe in your playbook, you're seeing the world through a lens you haven't even thought too much about. Maybe it's just how you were taught from your parents, how you were taught in your family or the town that you grew up in. Everybody kind of saw things the same way. So you have that in your playbook. Maybe your playbook is your priorities or your hopes or your dreams your goals, 
What is it in your playbook? Maybe your playbook includes the American dream that your life is being lived so that you can get ahead and get the best house, your dream house, or get to your ideal retirement. Maybe your playbook is just simply a a picture of a life and family that is safe and problem-free, right? If you can just get to that point that that you're not having problems. Maybe that's what the playbook is pointing to for you. Maybe your playbook is filled with goals for personal advancement, gaining power, gaining recognition. Maybe your playbook is figuring out how to get respect from people. Something that I see a lot in my neighborhood is people just longing and looking to feel respected by others. That's what their playbook is pointing towards. So we all have these playbooks. But then we look up and we see the story of Jesus, this guy Jesus who comes onto the scene who's full of grace and peace. And we see something different in him than just what we experience in our playbook. And we look at the lives of the disciples and say, man, there's something really interesting going on with them. Maybe we look at the lives of other people around us in our world or in our lives. Maybe we see someone like Mother Teresa, not only the sacrifices that she made, but just seeing how wise she seemed, how full of peace and life. See that that's different than the way we've been going. Maybe you have a a mother or a grandfather or a mentor, and when you see that person, you see there's just something different about them than where your life has been taking you. There's something desirable about them. There's a grace and a peace and a wisdom and a joy and a love that you see in them. And you see these people as you look up and you say to yourself, I want that. That would be really good for me if I just had that. I want those things. And so we copy parts of their lives that we see and we add it to our playbook. So we see those people doing things and we're like, oh, I'll do that too and then I'll be just like them. But often our life is still the same. We're still in control of things. And while our life is still the same, we've added some things to it. You know, now we have some extra crosses, maybe necklaces around our neck or in our house. You know, maybe we've added some, you know, morning devotions to our day of reading a book maybe an occasional prayer. Maybe we've added some several hours a month attending worship services. We do the things we see in others while still playing by the same playbook. And we believe to ourselves, we've done it. We're the same. I go to church just like them. I pray every once in a while just like them. I have a cross just like they have a cross. We are the same now similar to how the Jews thought when they looked at Paul and thought that just because they copied his words, they had everything figured out together. But then life beats us up, and we wonder what happened. As people, we look at our life, and it's still filled with the same stress. We still have anxiety. We're overwhelmed by control issues. We're let down by broken expectations. And we have to deal with that. And as a church, people look at the church and they look at us sometimes and they see all that we're going through and we wonder why others watch us from the outside and question the point 
of what we're doing. The truth is, the normal playbook that we use in life often falls short of producing the grace and peace that we long for. Just playing by the same playbook we've always had still falls short. And adding a little religion to that same playbook doesn't change our lives either any more than smacking people makes my daughter a doctor. It's just adding something else to it. What the exorcist doesn't realize is that there was something different about Paul and the disciples that produced different results for them. It wasn't just the words that they used. There was actually something entirely different going on with them than adding the name of Jesus to their life. I believe the secret is found in the proclamation of John the Baptist in Matthew 3, 2. You have it on your card. It's just one sentence there. John the Baptist came into the world to prepare the world for Jesus, to let everybody know that he was here and let them know what they should do about it. And John the Baptist went around and he just said this phrase. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. So Jesus is coming and his call to action for them, the one thing that he called on them to do was repent because the kingdom of heaven, because Jesus is near, repent. I think that's a word that's really badly translated, if I'm going to be honest with you. If we think of the word repent in English, we think of what? We think of like confessing the things we've done wrong. We think about feeling really bad and really sorrowful for the things that we've done. And certainly confession and sorrow are important things. But the word repent that John the Baptist used actually had the meaning of fundamentally changing the way you think, behave, or live. Fundamentally changing. To turn from one path onto an entirely different path is what he's talking about. So what John the Baptist is saying when he says repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, he's saying all of your life, you and everyone else and all of the forces of the world have been heading in one direction. You've been following one playbook. But now there's a different path arriving there's a new path, a path of grace and peace, a path of love and joy and meaning and a life full of all the stuff that we think of heaven. There's a new path available. And he's telling us, he's begging us, leave your path. Drop your playbook. Discover a new way. Now, it's interesting. One, this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven near, was spoken to a highly religious audience. It was people that were living their life soaked in religion. And he's saying to these people soaked in religion, you're on a path, but there's a different path still yet, a better path that has all the things you need and all the things you're looking for. The path, the way, Jason taught us a couple weeks ago. That's how early Christians, they, they, they weren't, before they were known as Christians, they were referred to as just people of the way, of the path. People recognize that these, this group of people, these early Christians, they were walking down an entirely different road than the rest of us. <laughs> they were on a different way. Their whole life was headed in a different direction. So here's the results of those who heard that message. In Matthew 4, you can pick it up, that next paragraph there. 
says, uh, one day Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee and he saw two brothers, Simon, who's also called Peter, and Andrew that were throwing a net into the water for they fished for a living. And Jesus called out to them and he said, come follow me and I will show you how to fish for people instead. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, he saw two brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father, Zebedee, that's an awesome name, by the way, uh, repairing their nets. And he called them to come too, and they immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. So what does it look like for the people who heard John the Baptist's message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is near? What does it look like for them? Do they just add Jesus to their life when he comes to them? No, they leave the life that they had behind. They drop their nets. They leave their boat. They even walk away from their father to go and follow him. For the disciples, the way wasn't about adding Jesus to their playbook, but about leaving the entire playbook behind that they had been following to that point. And only when they were willing to leave behind their previous playbook were they ready to embrace the way of grace and peace? So let's return to our story, close it out. So we're backing up in the passage in Acts. We're looking at the last paragraph there, starting in verse 17. The story of what happened to the guys uh, with the demoniac, the story of what happened spread quickly all through Ephesus to Jews and Greeks alike. And a solemn fear descended on the city, and the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. Many who became believers confessed their, spiritual, their sinful practices. A number of them who had been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books and burned them at a public bonfire. The value of the books was several million dollars. I converted the currency and adjusted for inflation. But. <laughs> so there we have. Witnesses to the story saw the same lesson that we see the disciples see, that Jesus isn't an incantation or a lucky charm or a daily devotion added to the playbook. Jesus brings an entirely new way of being human, an entirely new way. And when they saw that reality, what did they do? They decided to burn their old playbooks because they wouldn't be needing them anymore. They were headed in a new direction. So what is a church? What is a church? A church isn't some group of people that add some religion to their lives, that add a little bit of Jesus, add a little bit of God, add a little bit of singing and a little bit of sermons. Not just some people who add some religion to their lives. A church is people who are willing to lose their plans, give up their normal ways for the sake of real change, for the sake of real life on a different path. Dan and the team are going to come and lead us through an exercise that's going to help us to process through practicing this. And as they do, I just want to leave you with these words of Jesus in Luke 9, 23 and 24. Then Jesus said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake you will save it. Beautiful. Thanks, Ryan. 
So we're going to spend the next few minutes reflecting and praying. Uh, this might be new or awkward uh, for you, and that's totally fine. Uh, you can dive in with us, or you can simply pray on your own, or just take a nap. Um, these moments of silence and stillness are a gift to you, so you can use it however you want. Well, let's close our eyes. Put your feet flat on the floor. Take two or three nice, deep breaths. In and let it out slowly. Think about your personal playbook, your plans and ideas about success, your needs and desires, your political worldview, what you think will make you happy and how to get it. And with your hands in your lap, just clench your fists. Hold on tightly to this playbook. This playbook represents security, safety, certainty. A lot of it is really good stuff, but not all of it. So take a minute to name one or two unhealthy parts of your playbook. The habits or desires in your life that cause rifts in your relationships with others or with God. It could be pride, arrogance, moral superiority, selfishness, greed, self-reliance, the need to be right. Just ask God to bring these unhealthy parts to mind. Keep those fists clenched as they come to mind. we surrender to God, it's not because he has somehow defeated us or overpowered us. God is not at war against us. We surrender to God when we finally realize that on our own, even on our best days, we still manage to hurt ourselves and the ones we love. The battle is within us, and we have no hope of winning it on our own. Exhausted, desperate, we shout at the ceiling, I give up. I can't do this anymore. I can't go on like this. We surrender, we lay down the playbook we've written for ourselves or that was written for us by others. We give up our selfish desires and impulses that aren't just bad for others, they're unhealthy for us as well. So when you're ready, as an outward symbol of surrender, just release your fists, open up your hands, palms up, and imagine your playbook slipping from your grip, falling to the floor at the feet of Jesus. Feel the tension release from your hands, sense the weight lifting from your shoulders, 
you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have it all together. There is freedom in surrender. from surrendering to receiving. So sometime in the next few minutes or during the next song, lift your cupped hands out in front of you. This is just a way of saying with our body as well as our heart and our mind, Jesus, I need you. I need your guidance and wisdom and grace. Your way is so much better than mine. Would you help me to follow you into a hurting world? another minute or two in your own words asking God for guidance and for help help in laying down our playbook and following him into the world Let me pray this blessing over you as you leave tonight. May you, as you go and leave this place out into the world, may you find freedom from the patterns of life that have let you down for too long. And in its place, may you find in Jesus a fullness of life, of love and joy, of grace and peace beyond expectation grace and peace to you. Have a great night.